Hello and welcome to another episode of Scotland's Choice Podcast. This is our weekly Westminster Roundup with me, Kirsty Blackman, MP. And with me, Brendan O'Hara, MP. And in this episode, we'll be talking about what's, as we always do, what's happening here at Westminster and what eventful week we've had. No. The fate of a certain Mr Johnston was decided. Uh, the cost of living crisis never goes away as does the, the rising cost of people's mortgages and the inflation figures which came out this week. We'll also be talking about pensions and the finance bill. So it's a pretty packed uh, programme. I'm Drew Hendry MP and we'll also chat about my new bill which is aimed at protecting rural communities from bank and post office closures. But first let's get to the most important thing we do today which is to introduce our first guest. I'm Stuart Rosie, the MP for Dundee East. I'm looking forward to taking part. Good to have you joining us, Stuart. I just want to turn to Brendan first. He's the chief whip here for the SNP. Is it true that this place is collapsing? Do you mean physically or yeah, metaphorically? Well, well, possibly both. both. <laughs> a bit both, because Kirsty was pointing out early that uh, there's something about the, the vacuum of business that's happening. I mean, there really is. You know, the government have absolutely ran out of steam. There is nothing left. They've got no legislation left. We're seeing so many opposition days being handed out. We're seeing an increase in the number of estimates days, which is, um, I mean, it sounds pretty niche, but the government generally doesn't want people to talk about how they're spending money, and they're actually allowing us more days to talk about it because they've got nothing else to fill the agenda with. Well, of course, it's, uh, yeah, there's no power in that, is there? No, there's no. The opposition day debates are just fairly knockabout stuff, as we, as we know. Um, but I think that for what, we, what we're seeing now is, as Kirsty says, the government government's agenda, they've hit the bottom of the barrel, there's, there's nothing there. You know, they are scrambling about for things to fill the, the, the agenda. I, I know from overhearing conversations uh, on the stairwell this morning that they're all getting their folk down to Somerset and Froome and up to Uxbridge and anywhere else that they've got these by election, so they're just they're sending a thought there. I understand they're worried about the timing of some debates earlier. Did you not have a wee conversation earlier? <laughs> I mean, I won't, I won't betray any confidences, but uh, one of the government whips changed this and said, one of your guys has just told us he's going to be speaking for 45 minutes. <laughs> and I thought, that's a bit much. So I went in and spoke to the, the, uh, the, the, the member involved and I said, how long are you planning to speak? And he said, ah, four or five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so lost in translation. That's, that's so much as uh, often that down here. Yeah. So um, let's get to the, the programme. Yes. So the big news of the week was clearly the debate on the privileges report. And wow, what an eye opener. What an eye opener that was. It was quite astonishing. Uh, the fact that he mustered seven votes at the end of it doesn't tell the whole story. It was quite dramatic. It, it doesn't tell the whole story at all. At all. I mean, it was obvious <coughs> the Privilege Committee report was going to be passed with a stonking big majority, and quite right too. But the fact that there were people prepared to stand up in the chamber, Tories, and effectively say, no, this report is completely false, the man's innocent, it's all a whitewash, it's all a kangaroo court. Even when the evidence in one or two cases wasn't just in black and white, but they were holding it up and denying <laughs> what had just been presented to them after a huge mm -hmm. amount of due process. Mm -hmm. and it was quite the most extraordinary thing. But, but then some of them didn't even vote. 
Oh, indeed. I mean, some of the people <laughs> who've, been, who've been going around the studios over the past week or two, you know, uh, casting aspersions on this person, casting doubt on this fact, blah, blah, blah. And then lo and behold, when you check the uh, record later, no vote was cast. I'm not going to say it's cowardly, but well, why not? It was, it was a bit off. Why, if why you, would you not say no, it's no, cowardly? If, if, if you're going to go to the time and trouble to go around the TV studios and speak to every microphone, you really should have had the guts. One should have had the guts to vote. Uh, and it was telling that a number who come into that category yeah. chose not. Isn't that a fact that there were more people given honours in Boris Johnson's resignation list than actually voted for him? Well, well, maybe he should have been even more generous, but if the Privileges <laughs> Committee look into that... I think let, eight away, I, I or think, got eight through, I should say, and there were only seven votes. I, I think for the time being we should refer to that as the Johnson Provisional Honours yeah. list oh, that no, may no. yet be subject to change. Well, I mean, so last week when uh, we were discussing the the report, it literally just landed, and we hadn't actually had time to have a proper look at it. Uh, just to give some context to this, are the hundred and ten pages of this report, and it was written by a committee with a majority of Tories on it. It is unbelievably damning. I mean, it, unbelievably, it calls him disingenuous. It, it, it has. Sort of talks about the fact that he's baffled that he received a fixed penalty notice and it clearly, from what he said to the committee, he doesn't seem to accept that he broke the law despite accepting the fixed penalty notice. Oh. From a Tory majority committee, it is just stunning yeah, that they could it, be so it really was. negative about his yeah. behaviour. And I think as well that, going back to Stuart's point about cowardice, I mean, I, you, you have a Prime Minister who was, well, when he was elected or you know, when he was parachuted in, was talking about integrity and and the one one of the words he used was accountability. You know, this he will be a prime minister and his hallmark will be accountability. And a committee of this house, as you see, a Tory led committee of this house was in eviscerated Johnson mm -hmm. on his behaviour. And Sunak ran for cover. Yeah. And he made some nonsense about conventions about ministers not voting. It's absolute nonsense. If you want to be accountable, you want to say you're not going to be accountable, and the first big challenge comes and you run for cover. It's a mark of the man's. Remember, though, I mean, we're having a bit of fun with this just now, but there's a real serious point behind this. And I can remember to this day, the day the provisional Sue Green report was published. <laughs> before the final one, before the privileges, the provisional one. Right, it made the point that there'd been a lot of parties. We'd already seen the uh, we'd already seen the photographs by there were some of the photographs had leaked by then. This was a prime minister breaking his own rules, receiving a fixed penalty notice, while people were dying on their own because relatives simply couldn't visit them, couldn't be in the same room or even the same building as them. And then, as the report makes clear, effectively denying or lying about it. Misleading Parliament. Yeah, this is actually really serious. Yes, it, it is, is really serious. And perhaps even worse now for members of the public to see these videos emerge. Um, you know, to see that out there and, and, and get an idea of the kind of this worth frivolity or lack of care or, you know, just the oh, selfishness. A sense of entitlement. Yes, indeed. You know, these folk thought they were above the law. These yeah. folk with their fancy braces and their bad dancing 
they thought they were above the law. But it is absolutely astonishing. If I had to break on the Sunday before the Privilege Committee and the Monday, you know, if the Prime Minister wants to, as I go back to, if accountability, then that happened. You know, he was Chancellor. He was next door. Yeah. He, he got a fixed penalty notice. He got a fixed penalty notice himself. And if, if he's, you know, for him not to take part in that vote, I think, almost, I think, condones what you well, saw in those well, let's, videos. Let's pick up on a bit of a theme there because Stephen Flynn had his Prime Minister's questions earlier and they put it to uh, Rishi Sunak about a number of things about the economy that perhaps wasn't being, let's let's be uh, kind, wasn't being straight with people and said that he didn't want to learn his honesty from, uh, <laughs> from Boris Johnson did he? or something like that. But I think the fact that that has pulled up um, is now established that it's actually becoming, you know, quite a uh, you know, thing where you can, you know, it essentially looks like it's going to be a problem in this place if you even see, you know, we don't like Boris Johnson, that's going to really... Aye, the, the fact that the speaker <laughs> suggested <laughs> yeah. that Stephen was kind of pretty close to the line, if not beyond it. What was interesting though? He didn't ask them to withdraw it. No. Yeah. no uh, he stayed on the right side of convention and everybody knew mm -hmm. exactly what it meant. And I know we're going to go in and discuss this for a little bit. Remember, uh, Rishi Sunak said in January, inflation would be halved by the end of this year. Mm -hmm. That means down to 5%, just over. Uh, I think there's very little chance of that. Very, very little chance of that. And then what do we say? Was that a promise? Has it been broken? Well, Time will tell, uh, but uh, I'm glad the, the speaker didn't uh, ask Stephen to withdraw that remark because it was the right remark to make. Mr. Stuart, before we get to the more discussion about uh, the economic situation, um, you were centre stage for us earlier this week uh, in the finance bill. Hmm. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about what that was about? Well, I, I, the, the finance bill follows from the budget. Now, as we know, the budget, uh, the government said was designed to tackle debt and deficit, uh, debt servicing costs, uh, GDP growth. That's what it was meant to deal with. The problem was there was very little in it that actually did that. You'll recall that the numbers from the Office of Budget Responsibility uh, indicated over the next five years, there was going to be nothing approximating the growth we needed to actually tackle these big problems. And then when we get to the finance bill proper, Again, it, the absence of chunky measures was just palpable. So we have the final stages of it yesterday, and uh, the two substantive things we were debating uh, was the uh, ending of the lifetime allowance for pension pensions, which doesn't really help to any great extent the pension employment trap for NHS doctors, but will benefit as many bankers. So we can see where the Tories' priorities really lie. And the second thing was the Tory plan to abolish the Office of Tax Simplification. Everybody wants to see tax simplified, so what's the Tory plan? Do away with the body, Charles will make it happen. And that these were the two substantive matters that we ended up discussing yesterday. And to go back to your discussion at the beginning, business collapsed, what, three, four hours early again yesterday on a finance bill I don't recall that ever happening in my nearly 20 years here. Yeah, it seems really weird. I don't know 
force, uh, you know, and it does feel like the UK government is not just running out of steam in terms of the legislative agenda, but they're struggling to even get their kind of loyal diehards to come and speak in the chamber for the most important debates. I mean, normally there's a wee list of people that you could, you know, that would be desperate for ministerial positions at some point in the future and then would be really keen to come along and make an extensive backbench speech. Well, I, I think yesterday, apart from interventions, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think anybody spoke unless they were actually moving a new clause or an amendment. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, from memory, a number of the amendments and new clauses selected for debate weren't even moved. There was no one there to speak to them. That, again, is quite extraordinary for a finance bill. Yeah. We actually saw the same in the procurement bill when the uh, Labour guys didn't show up to move his. Um, amendments which would have been really good because they would have been the real living wage and yeah. making sure that people get paid the real living wage which is something we've managed to do for procurement in Scotland in terms of um, a lot of the contracts that we we have in Scotland but that the UK government is resolutely refusing to do and interestingly that the Labour front bench refused to support um, so you know the, one of their backbenchers had to put forward this clause about paying people a wage that they can live on um, but the is Labour I, front I, bench didn't I think Labour are a real real problem you know yeah, they're ahead in the polls, but these things can change. What is their agenda that makes them better than the Tories? So they've abandoned the twenty-eight billion pledge on green spending. Now, as you say, they're not even prepared to support from the front bench a rather modest measure like that, which actually works in Scotland and costs government not one penny. So I, I, I do think Labour have a huge problem. Let me ask all of you: We know that the Tories have got a five-point plan. It, Starts with having inflation, which won't work, and ends with pushing boats somewhere. What are Labour's five-point plan? What's their five I'll national missions? Because I, I can't remember any of them. I know what they are. So number one is we are not the Tories. Yeah. Number two is we are not the Tories. <laughs> number three is we are not the Tories. And four and five are we are not the Tories. Precisely. Nobody knows what they're actually offering. And I think this is well, going they're to be... offering the same, aren't they? I mean, if you, it's only... You'll have to look at the... Again, overnight, they're talking about now not getting rid of the House of Lords, not reforming it, yeah. and now stuffing it with more members mm -hmm. so they can achieve what they call balance. I mean, that's just one example. We get one of these almost every day. Yeah, they're planning. They're planning to keep policies around stopping the small boats. They're planning to um, keep the Tory policy. In fact, I'm not even sure what they're going to be doing about the trade union legislation. At you know, at this point, like. They're, they seem to be saying, right, we're not necessarily going to undo anything that the Tories yeah. have done, but yeah. vote for us because we are not Liz Truss and Quasi Quarteng. Yes, yeah. I, I think that that's essentially it. It's, you know, they are pursuing the same general economic policies. In fact, they have to because they believe in Brexit. Mm -hmm. They believe that, you know, they, well, they will not rejoin the single market. You know, the customs union is gone. Free movement of people will not come back. So they are funneling themselves into that same economic disaster zone that the Tories are in purely for political expediency because they believe that that's what this isn't, isn't, red wall wants to hear. Isn't that just absolutely tragic? And we heard the PMQs today, um, Starmer was partly right. Some of this is the fall of 13 years of Tory government. I mean, he's partly right. Some of it is the uh, result of the kamikaze uh, growth budget, Quartine's budget. But we heard from Mark Carney, the former governor of the Central Bank, this week. A large chunk of the inflationary impact is to do with Brexit, and that's the words that will not pass the lips of a yeah. Labour frontbencher. And I have to say, I think that's absolutely shameful. Mm -hmm.
course it is. True. Really. So it's true. That that kind of takes us neatly on to, I mean, where are we uh, from an economic yeah. point of view? Uh, you know, we're seeing our constituents really struggling. We're seeing people we know really struggling. Everybody is feeling the pinch right now. What's the outlook? Right, okay. Where are we today? Today we have inflation at 8.7%. For it to have halved over this year, it needed to be coming down. Core inflation has actually risen today. It's gone, it's gone in the wrong direction. That's extremely bad news indeed. Mm -hmm. We've got the UK debt now north of 100% of GDP. Yeah, now, it's crept over 100%. It has crept over again. Now, you know, that doesn't mean on a five-year rolling program they won't meet their target for it to be falling as a share of GDP at some point. Mm -hmm. But it's easy for debt to go up. It's hard for debt to come down unless you've got above-trend growth and there's absolutely nothing to indicate this government or the Labour Party have got a clue about how to generate um, above-trend growth. Yeah. And the, but that, the way that that translates into our constituents is through their, their mortgage payments, it's through the prices they pay at the supermarkets, and they are utterly crippling. You know, we've got the... Expected rise tomorrow in uh, mortgage rates was thirteen in a row. It's going to rise. There's, so there's, there's three different bits in that. You've got food inflation, eighteen percent. Now just eighteen, but some items, sugar, nearly items, nearly fifty percent, yeah. mm -hmm. nearly So you've got a huge, huge problem there. You've got even fixed rate mortgages, two year deals now breaching the six percent uh, threshold. That's more than doubled in two years. That's a huge, huge problem. And all the other points you make. And where is the plan to resolve it? Well, there is none. I mean, yesterday, the Chancellor said to me, when we're talking about these very things, he intends to stick to the plan they have. The plan they have isn't working. Mm -hmm. But they're not prepared to look at the fiscal charter. They're not prepared to look at the inflation target the Bank of England worked toward. They don't appear to be prepared to look at a growth target in its place. They even remember at the last budget, although they kept the cap for energy at £2,500, they could have reduced it. That would have had the impact of bearing down on inflation. The actual steps government could take, because it's not all within their control, but the steps they could take to squeeze inflation, they haven't taken. It is absolutely, a, it, it, it's, it's a dereliction of duty. It really is. And the people who are suffering are, are our constituents. Yes. And we know that there, were, there was that, that what the Tories used to call them, the, 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 those who were managing. Yeah, just about managing. The, 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 the just about the managing. The, the jam. Yeah. That's it. Theresa May used to talk about the jam. If you look at where the jams are now, to where they were, in 2018 well, or 2019. <laughs> they are they are way below the waterline now. They are sinking. Oh, that's right. They're no they're no longer even the squeezed middle. I mean, yeah. they've been pinched so tightly they can't feel their toes. Yeah. This is how bad it's become. Yeah. I mean, people who are relatively comfortable even now are in that category are below. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, that's it. It's been a, a fairly seismic change over the past wee while. And and I think the the figure is correct me if I'm wrong, I think the figure uh, looks like it's going to add about two thousand nine hundred pounds or something like that to average mortgage over a year. Now, now if you if that figure's on right and that figure that's a substantial amount of money. That's uh, uh -huh. that's a, a, a month's wages for somebody earning a really good wage. 
in the space of a year. That yeah, is. and it is, and that's an average. And of course, it's yeah. actually it's actually worse than that. Uh, I understand that barely a third of people who are due to move from existing good fixed rate deals mm. have done so. And the rate at which they're going to start moving to more expensive deals and even more expensive as we expect in other base rates mm -hmm. is something in the order of 116,000 people a month yeah. who are going to suddenly find they've got to find an extra two, three, four, five, six hundred pounds a month mm -hmm. simply to pay the mortgage. Mm -hmm. That becomes unsustainable for a lot of people very, very quickly. Yeah, just for a lot of folk, uh, maybe four or five years ago, at those low interest rates, they believed that they could afford what they were quoted. You know, your, your mortgage will be £500 for five years. Now, nobody would have imagined at the end of the five years that <clears throat> your mortgage was going to be £1,500 mm -hmm. when you go to renegotiate it. So that money isn't there. That isn't money they've got hiding under the sofa that they can suddenly pull out and pay an extra yes. £1,000 in their month. That's correct. And, and because we know over a period of time now, real wages haven't kept pace with inflation yeah so even if two three four five years ago they could have borne that the way that real wages have been squeezed even if they've gone up in cash terms makes that doubly difficult well, well let's cut to the chase here because the uk government would say and you know so a listener and michael abbott war in ukraine uh and michael you know global factors coming out of a pandemic and so forth but you know, you mentioned the inflationary before we started talking about mortgages, which we'll come back to in just three seconds. You mentioned the inflation rates on fruits and so forth. Yeah. They're directly related to Brexit. You know, these are these costs are boosted uh, in an extraordinary way. I th I, look, I think none of us are naive. We know that these external shocks, COVID, the war in Ukraine, are having an impact. Of course they are. But every expert and every expert body is now saying you ignore the uh, inflationary consequences of Brexit at your peril. And it's not like these warnings are new. Some of us have been given these warnings since before the 2016 referendum. But that uh, chicken is now coming home to roost. And it's one thing which can be resolved. And I do, I have to say, because this is a political discussion, I find it mind-blowing. I understand the Brexit of Tories. I understand it. I, I don't agree with them, but I understand it. I cannot understand Labour's position of rejecting the single market, rejecting the customs union, rejecting the people. And frankly, I'm glad we're on the side of the angels. We need to get back into the European Union as a full member as quickly as possible. Absolutely. That takes away a great deal of these inbuilt yeah. And do you know what? We're sitting here, right, feeling this pain. Our constituents yes. are sitting at home feeling this pain. And we never voted for that. <laughs> you know, it's just, it, it, it hurts all of the more because this is something we emphatically rejected. And, and just to bring it back around to mortgages, because this is really important, I think. One of the factors about trying to deal with inflation is, of course, interest rates are used as the blunt tool, as you pointed out earlier, in order to secure, in order to to kind of try and curb inflation. So a lot of this, an awful lot of this, are directly related to the Brexit misadventure, which we've, uh, we've seen them undertaken. This, and this, as you said, really, really strange ideology that's now been adopted by Labour also. And the Lib Dems, who are still at the most educated. Well, that's absolutely right. The, the interest rate, I understand using interest rates to squeeze out traditional inflation where there's too much money chasing too few goods. 
Forget its input inflation caused by external shocks. All the interest rates do in many circumstances is simply made the pain worse. Now, I don't blame the central bank because they've been given one target, they've got one primary tool. The government need to review the fiscal charter and they need to review the tools available to the central bank. Yeah, totally yeah. agree. So, so let, let's talk about something else. Because you mentioned what well, we were told this war 2016 and so forth. There were also told back in 2014 with the independence referendum. You remember all that stuff about pensions, how we went to stay in the UK, then we'd make sure our pensions were being supported. Since then, as you know, we've seen attacks on the triple lock and everything else. Then the UK, where's it sitting, the OECD rankings for pensions now? Well, the, the, the statistics are absolutely astonishing. So I have to tell you, if you're a, a pensioner in the Netherlands, that as a percentage of average earnings, your pension would be 100%, in fact, 100.6%. That would be the equivalent of around £26,000 in the UK. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So that, that's where you'd be. So on average earnings in Holland, 100%. Portugal, 95%. Italy, 94%. Austria, 92%. Spain, 81%. The UK, 29%. Now, I think the, the figure you didn't include there was the OECD average is 62%. So it's even lower than half of the OECD. And do you remember we all were battering the doors in 2014 and the, the, the pensioner block, if you like, were so terrified of losing the security of their pension that they, they, they were the almost impenetrable group in 2014 to bring over to yes because of the, the, the fear of losing their pension. And look what, look what voting no has done. It's unbelievable. Those stats are eye-watering. It's worth having a wee look. David Linden was at uh, the select committee today and he spoke, he, he questioned one of the... the People giving evidence, he questioned them around this whole issue of pensions. And the, the guy who was responding was a former minister. Uh, Steve and it's Webb, yeah. Steve Webb, and it's well worth having a look at David. Because he, he had to do the mere culpa and say, Yeah, yeah, it's all gone to pot. It's yeah. just, it's, I think the, I can't remember the exact quote, but he said it's, it's bad. Yeah. Um, Everything know. that they promised in 14. You've also got a kind of, um, change in outlook from different generations as well so if you speak to people that are younger than me about what they expect right if you speak to my parents generation they expected to get a pension right because you know that was what they were told people my age people younger than me you know are looking at what the Tories have done at the pensions you know looking at the kind of um, that that 29%, looking at the fact that age keeps going up and thinking, we're never going to get a pension. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what's the point? Like, you know, it's never going to, it's never going to happen to us. You know, yeah. people, people are not able to buy houses because the prices have gone through the roof. They're not able to buy pasta because yeah. the prices have gone through the roof. The kind of optimism of the younger generations coming through has been utterly squashed and, and, and by Westminster. What's often missed as well is another uh, consequence of the UK raising the pension age is that for private pensions, and you know, not for all of them, but for quite a lot of private pensions, they actually peg to the UK government's yeah. pension age. So actually people might not be aware, they might be thinking, oh, I'm going to get a lump sum at 60 or whatever. They might get a shock to find out it's actually 67, 68, 70 or whatever, yeah. uh, when they finally get actual access to the private pension without losing some of it. So it, it's not good uh, for pensioners. Listen, I'm going to, we're running short time and I'm going to shamelessly 
uh, talk about my own bill, which I think to please do uh, took to the parliament today. And you know, we've all got um, this situation. I think in our communities, that, you know, I took a bill um, to force the UK government to finally act um, to protect local community, rural communities from the closure of banks and post offices and other services, saying well, there must be some kind of physical alternative as well as a plan to keep these things in. This is a big issue for rural towns and villages and those people live around it, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, this this is increasingly a problem because they're moving, you know, loads of banks have, have closed and we have fought at every step of the way, bank closures, for example. And you get the government saying, well, we're not going to step in because it's fine because the post office will pick it up, mm -hmm. right? And then the post office is closed. So they're not paying postmasters properly, drawing services. These these services are literally teetering on the brink. You know, they are. I mean, and when I was a boy, literally when I was a child, every single one of the villages had a post office. Now mm -hmm. I think there's one part-time post office. So the slack isn't being picked up. And much as the banks are probably right when they say people are and want to move online, it's not for everybody. And when it comes to business cash handling, that's simply impossible. So there's got to be a balance, and right now that balance is a bit Yeah, totally. I mean, I mean as a, a proud co-sponsor of your bill, Mr. Henry, um, you know, Gail Butte, my goodness, you want to talk about post office closures and bank closures every single year. It's just you think, well, it can't get any worse, mm -hmm. and it does, and they close and they close and they close. And this idea that everyone wants to be on doing digital banking, yes, I can understand that is, you know, if you lived in Glasgow or wherever, but if you live in Inverary, and uh, you, you're an elderly person in Inverary, who's, I think you probably say, well, maybe not within my mess, but yes. certainly with um, Argyll and Butte, we skew older than well, the national and average. They and cash. and they, they, they deal in cash, and this whole idea of being digital by default, hey, we're not there yet, and so they close the bank in Inverary, and you've got a 70-odd mile round trip well, to Oban, and I, it's just nonsense. I made the point in my speech today about the fact that there are other consequences of this as well. I mean, for example, good luck if you're an Amazon customer, for example, trying to return a parcel that has to go to everything. <laughs> if you, you can go to four different locations in London and find there isn't one that's working. What chance have you got a rural community to do things like that? There is, there is no chance. And when we talk about the post office network, I think it's really, you know, they keep saying, oh, banks can close and the post office will pick it up. Now, the post office network is actually hanging by a thread. These postmasters are basically living hand to mouth. I really do wonder what the consequence of this is going to happen. But, but all of this is, you know, I mean, the post office slightly aside because of the way that it's funded. But, um, you know, they're important public services that are being run for profit. You know, the structures that we have, we've ended up in a situation where vital public services that people need are able to close down, you know, in communities because of the fact that the intention behind them is that they've got to make a profit. You know, actually, we should have a, we should have a minimum service obligation um, on, on some of these things so that people can access that. Folk, you know, we haven't really mentioned properly kind of digital exclusion. We've mentioned people that maybe, but that, you know, there are people that don't have access to tablets or phones or um, the internet, you know, um, and, and if they did have access to it, they might not have the capabilities of using yeah. um, that tech. And it's just really difficult for people at a time where 
fuel's going up, prices are going up, everything is really, really expensive right now. It's even more difficult for people if you are then taking away those services and making them drive 70 miles in order yeah, to get well, somewhere they need to get to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a, an issue which I'm sure we'll come back to, but uh, in, in the great, in the power I have as chief whip, <laughs> I'm about to cry order, order on this because I can see that the current debate on retained EU law, revocation reform bill, laws amendment 15D, government motion to disagree is about to come to a close and we need to go and vote on it. So I will call time on this fascinating discussion. Huge thank you to Stuart. It's been a pleasure. I hope we can count on you to come back again. Happy to. Delighted. It's been brilliant to have you here. Thanks very much, Stuart. Cheerio for me. And cheerio for me. And cheerio for me. And it just says to a big thank you to our listeners once again. And you can get lots, lots, lots more episodes of Scotland's Choice at scotlandschoice.scot. 